Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're joined by Fidelity Canada's Chief Investment Officer, Andrew Marchese, who manages several funds, including Canadian Systematic Equity, Canadian Disciplined Equity, and Canadian Core Equity for investors. Please note, today's podcast was originally presented as a live webcast for institutional investors. As volatility continues to roil the markets here in North America and around the globe, where are we at in the business cycle? And which sectors are we seeing a slowdown? As well, what should investors prepare for at this stage of the cycle? Andrew speaks to host Brian Borsakowski about the latest factors weighing on the markets and how he's navigating current investment hurdles. He says most of his portfolios look pretty much the same as it did 12 months ago, but him and his team continue to do their homework on companies. For him, he's looking for companies that have healthy balance sheets. He looks at any liquidity issues, how long-term is their debt, and price to him is of utmost importance. You pick your price, and then you wait. Andrew also touches upon the latest production cut from OPEC, weaker U.S. job data, and the fallout of U.S. regional banks. This podcast was recorded on April 5, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So, um, you know, it's always a lot of news going on all the time, it feels like today. And I think it's confusing a lot of people as to where we are exactly in the cycle. So my first question to you is just that. When you look at the evolution of the cycle, where are we at? What are you seeing? Uh, I think on a global basis. So if we start in North America, we're clearly in the late stages of an economic cycle. We had a lot of tightening by central banks in both Canada and the United States last year that should manifest itself in uh, continuing kind of uh, deteriorating numbers in both housing and manufacturing. We've seen that in kind of like the PMI numbers and the the housing numbers. Uh, The question then at at this point is, is the tightening sufficient then to address some of the inflationary concerns that the U.S. Federal Reserve has with respect to inflation in the uh, service sector, in particular of the U.S. economy? If you kind of go over the pond to Europe, they're still in a tightening regime over there uh, from a central bank perspective. So uh, continuing to see slowing in that economy again. So the manifestation of global economic growth slowing has so far shown up uh, in many ways, um, you know, in the form of consumer behavior slightly, in the form of manufacturing. I think we're still waiting for some other things to possibly show up uh, from a service sector perspective. So, I mean, the banking crisis in the U.S., regional banking issues, um, certainly dominated news headlines for a while. How has that uh, that crisis or, or issue impacted, you think, the Fed's behavior going forward? Some people think there could be rate cuts in 2023. 
Well, yeah, if you look at Bloomberg right now, the consensus is for rate cuts in the back half of this year. That's kind of the market general consensus viewpoint. As it pertains to Silicon Valley Bank and, and U.S. regional banks in general, I actually wasn't too fussed about that. The, the situation got contained by, uh, I think, about Sunday night, uh, and it started kind of on the Thursday or Friday of that same week. So uh, within a relatively short order, the situation got contained. It's not unprecedented. We've seen this, you know, in the, in the traditional savings and loans crisis back in the 80s with the, in the U.S. Orange County crisis. Uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of ink spilled about the whole topic, but I would say that, you know, it's a garden variety uh, asset liability mismatching and a, a few institutions uh, made their bets on the on, on rates and the yield curve incorrectly. And, and uh, once confidence is breached in the bank itself and deposits flee, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So uh, I am not that fussed about that whole situation. Uh, the concern I have kind of going forward is what do corporate profits look like uh, for the remaining nine months in the year? And then, you know, kind of um, what it looks like in, in 2024. I don't think it's too early to be looking out even further than the remainder of this year. And that's what we're really focused on here at Fidelity. And for the purposes of my portfolios, that's what I'm really focused on to understand um, you know, has the worst case scenario from a negative earnings revision been priced in for the securities I hold? And if it's been priced in, then I feel pretty good about the, you know, the upside downside or a risk reward scenario. Um, if it hasn't, I need to be cautious and, and ask myself, should I be in those stocks in general? Uh, similarly, are there any names I currently don't own uh, where the risk reward is skewed so favorably towards reward? whenever the next economic cycle shows up that I should start buying the security today. So those are the things that are really going through my mind. And, and I would say most of our investors mind here within the team. So when you're looking at the risks, I mean, what are some of the key risks that you're looking at? And uh, to, to your point there, are those priced in or, or is it on a sort of a company by company basis right now? I think a lot of what the work we're doing is really on an idiosyncratic basis right now. So it's really trying to uh, understand um, what will be any, if, you know, headwinds towards revenue for a company in question or an industry in question. Is there some lag effect in terms of inflation that will further crimp uh, profit margins in the quarters ahead? Um, how long is that durable for? In other words, not only the magnitude that we may need to adjust earnings by, but for how long? Duration. Um, you know, typically interest rate hikes take about at least 12 months to start working their way in through the system. So I don't think from a general economy standpoint, we've seen um, the last yet of a hit to aggregate demand for a lot of goods and services. Um, so we have to be very considerate, if you will, of that um, when we're really doing our diligence on each industry and each company within that industry. Moreover, I think, as you, you've seen, you know, with interest rates going up as much as they did, we really have to understand the balance sheet risk for each of the companies that we're investing in and, and making sure that, you know, uh, there are no covenant breaches uh, potentially to come, um, liquidity issues kind of going forward, how termed out is the debt, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a better understanding of what their capital needs are which also has implications for what their capital allocation strategy may be in both the near term and midterm. So 
a lot of things going through our, our head right now as it relates to corporate profits and health of balance sheets. And I think ultimately the best crutch in this type of environment as we get through the late stage of the economy is really price, right? So if you pick your price well, if you buy smart, um, that's really the best thing to do and then wait. And so uh, my portfolios in general don't actually look that different than they did, you know, say 12 months ago. And we're, but we do a lot of homework um, between that. And so we're just making our, our shopping list and making sure, you know, um, making our list and checking it twice, so to speak. And uh, that's a lot of the work that's been going on over the last six to nine months. So if, if the optimism is there currently that, you know, earnings are going to be okay. Um, and, and if you're thinking that there could be an earnings hit here going forward, what does that mean for stocks just broadly? Are we going to still see markets then decline? I think the environment we're in. So when we do our homework through, you know, the major sectors, the gig sectors of the market, you know, I can point to a number of securities where uh, they would otherwise be, you know, traditionally more in the front end of the economy, which is not a great place to be right now where we are in the economic cycle. But they've actually been discounted quite significantly. Other securities in possibly that same industry have not. So it's really a case by case basis. So I, I don't think, you know, when you look at market bottoms like March of 2003, uh, uh, 2009, March of 2009, you had that kind of holistic buy risk, buy the market, buy beta. I don't think we're, we're in that environment for 2023. That being said, I think, you know, what we're trying to do is selectively add to individual securities where the risk reward is skewed in terms of reward. And they don't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean it takes on a defensive stance. They may actually be more cyclical companies. It's really case by case. I can, I can point to things that look very attractive, things within the same industry that don't look attractive because the price is not right and risk reward hasn't necessarily been adequately priced in and you don't have that, that margin of safety for us. Why would that be? I mean, that's so, that's interesting. Why is it different this time? Why are you seeing it that way? For the better part of nine months, there's been a lot of um, disagreement, if you will, in the market, in consensus about the trajectory of the economy and you know, as recently as January 1st, you had a, a real group of people saying there was going to be no landing. And now, and then some people saying soft landing and others saying hard landing. And um, over the course of my career, I don't remember it as being as split, at least from a top-down perspective. Uh, some of those folks who were in the no landing, soft landing camp uh, since January 1st have migrated over to the hard landing camp. Um, with the events of, of the U.S. regional banks, with, you know, interest rates continuing to move higher in the United States. So um, I don't know why it is as such, but it's actually not unprecedented. You can look back to uh, the market cycle, the dot-com and, and NASDAQ cycle, 99, 2000, and how that kind of eroded over the better part of three years. And there are some similarities. I won't too lengthy to mention over the course of this call, but there are some similarities to that kind of environment. So um, that's fine with us. We pride ourselves in being an active management shop. Uh, we invest a lot of time and resources in doing idiosyncratic security due diligence. And so these are the types of environments where we need to work harder um, and really uncover some uh, really good investment stories 
and looking out on a multi-year basis. I think if you, you become too myopic and are just thinking about the next six to 12 months, I think you'll miss the boat. So you just have to look out longer and be patient. I, I was going to ask about that because, you know, we have an institutional audience who generally are taking a long-term view, except you're getting constant uh, hits of all the, the things, things going on in, in various parts of the world. Um, and I'm curious for you, how do you kind of stay that long-term approach when there's so much news happening and people like talking about the short term and like talking about each economic move? How do you balance the short with the long? Well, one clear way, you don't listen to the news. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, I mean, you turn that stuff off first and foremost. So that, that, that's not helpful. It's not constructive for anybody on our team. So um, turn that off, have a lot of faith and trust in the work that you and your teammates are doing. Um, have the discipline around it. You, you, you know what you're looking for. Uh, we've been doing this a long time. We know what we're looking for. And so it's just about doing really, really, really strong analysis and then having the discipline to take the action when appropriate um, and trusting all that homework that you've done. Um, I, I, think, I think that's it. I think, I think you know, every year that goes by, we have more noise in the financial services industry. We have more media outlets, more sources of information. It seems there's no shortage of opinions about just about anything. I'm not so sure a lot of it's actually relevant and it's topical and, and as I said earlier, constructive. So you just tune that out, do what you do, have a game plan and execute the game plan. Um, good advice. Uh, let's let's talk about sort of the opportunities you're, you're seeing. So again, it's not sort of doesn't sound like it's just, you know, full sectors you're, you're going into, but with the companies that you are watching or perhaps investing in today, what characteristics do they have? And are there parts of the market where you may be finding more opportunities than others? I think um, some of the company, the, the shared characteristics of the companies that are in my, in my portfolios, I think generally speaking, they have a lower earnings variance to them from year to year. So generally speaking, um, kind of within the same sector itself, less cyclicality, if you will, uh, they probably have a little bit better debt coverage and uh, interest coverage. So, you know, speaking about the balance sheets that I mentioned earlier, they have those kind of characteristics. The opportunities I'm looking for are actually securities in each of the gig sectors, 11 gig sectors, who may have more earnings variance going forward. They opportunistically play well through as you come through, you know, a slowdown in the economy. And then when you start emerging from that in, into recovery and early cycle mode, you generally want stocks with a little bit more earnings variance uh, to them. And the best thing that can help you by buying them right is just simply price. So I, that's where I find myself doing a lot of like the homework with the analysts and, and whatnot and asking questions, doing sensitivity analysis on our financial modeling, stuff like that. So the constituency of the portfolios generally tend to be um, slightly more uh, lower beta, less earnings variance related, more of the homework is being done on the other side, uh, however. So uh, it just speaks to you want to you wanna be opportunistic on the things you currently don't own when the time is right. Um, let's talk a bit about stocks and bonds. Uh, you know, bonds wasn't a, as maybe a big of a conversation in the last 10 years when yields were low, but now it's back. And um, how do, are you positioning or Fidelity positioning itself in, in, in both of these asset classes? How have they changed when it comes to portfolio construction today? I think, you know, with respect to 
uh, fixed income, obviously we we haven't seen a year like last year in the fixed income industry and or, or segment of the market, the asset class itself, in a very, very, very long time. Um, that being said, I, I think on a selective basis, obviously uh, there will be some corporates um, out there that look appealing. Treasuries obviously to me look uh, very appealing um, uh, for a lot of ways. That being said, you know, I, I think this this inflation topic uh it kind of ebbs and flows it it kind of it gains a lot of steam and then it kind of backs off a little bit we all know inflation's kind of like an, a lagging indicator but i think the question for us is the what we ask and this has implications for you know um uh, your asset allocation decisions um i i think it's not that inflation won't come down and it has come down it's where does it level off at? And then subsequent to that, how do central banks think of interest rate policy thereafter? And this goes back to your earlier comment about um, the consensus for the market is to cut rates in the second half of this year. I think if you look at the post-World War II era on average, it's about three to four months. This is an average, so there's a danger in speaking in averages, but on average, the first rate cut happens about three to four months after the last rate hike. So I think there's a lot of people taking that kind of um, math or correlation, if you will, and kind of applying it going forward. Um, that might be a little presumptuous because I, 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 nobody disagrees that inflation's coming off. It's just where does it level at at this current level of interest rates? The other thing that I don't think enough people are talking about is respect to quantitative tightening. Um, there was a lot of liquidity, a lot of liquidity injected into the financial system uh, on the heels of COVID, uh, actually dwarfs what was done during the global financial crisis. That needs to come out of the system, and I think that's a long-term issue. Um, so I, I think monetary policy and how the Fed deals with its, or the U.S. deals with its balance sheet are two things still acting in a de facto kind of tightening regime. And is it sufficient? Is it not sufficient? Um, and I think that's the broader implications for your fixed income allocation. It, it's a tough one. It's, uh, I, you know, it, I'm not so certain that um, there has been sufficient liquidity extracted from the system to say the Fed has won the war on inflation. I think that's to be determined. Um, let's move to uh, Canada a bit here because your strategies are focused on Canada. Um, how is the Canadian market doing today? How would you characterize it in sort of in the global context? We've had a couple of strong years in Canada relative to the rest of the world. Um, I, I think, you know, oil continues to hang in there. You, you mentioned earlier production cuts by OPEC, uh, which has put a near-term kind of bid under oil and gas stocks recently. But I think, you know, I think, Canada's a small export-based economy. Its market reflects kind of the economy in a lot of ways. So we have to be cognizant of that. And so as the globe continues to slow uh, because of the tightening that was done last year as it makes its way through the system, we have to be very, very cognizant of that. And, and um, we do know at, at the consumer level in Canada, the Canadian consumer is definitely more levered than the U.S. consumer, uh, principally to mortgages and real estate. Um, that has implications not only for the consumer, but banks themselves. So if we are going through kind of a garden variety cycle here, 
what are the implications for loan loss provision ratios at Canadian banks? And we're trying to figure that out. And again, this comes back to sensitivity analysis and what has been discounted by the market already and what hasn't. And so, you know, obviously oil and gas and financials are the two big sectors people talk about within the Canadian marketplace. So, um, you know, one's got some near-term fundamentals tailwinds to it on the back of OPEC and the other, you know, um, there are some risks associated with the garden variety economic cycle to it. That being said, um, you're not paying 15 times for the banks, right? So there, 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 there's been a meaningful kind of PE multiple compression that started last year. It's been going on for the better part of 15 uh, months. So um, if they were far more expensive than they currently are, I would probably be a lot more concerned. Um, let's move to uh, Canada a bit here because your strategies are focused on Canada. Um, how is the Canadian market doing today? How would you characterize it in sort of in the global context? We've had a couple of strong years in Canada relative to the rest of the world. Um, I, I think, you know, oil continues to hang in there. You, you mentioned earlier production cuts by OPEC, uh, which has put a near-term kind of bid under oil and gas stocks recently. But I think, you know, I think, Canada's a small export-based economy. Its market reflects kind of the economy in a lot of ways. So we have to be cognizant of that. And so as the globe continues to slow uh, because of the tightening that was done last year as it makes its way through the system, we have to be very, very cognizant of that. And, and um, we do know at, at the consumer level in Canada, the Canadian consumer is definitely more levered than the U.S. consumer, uh, principally to mortgages and real estate. Um, that has implications not only for the consumer, but banks themselves. So if we are going through kind of a garden variety cycle here, what are the implications for loan loss provision ratios at Canadian banks? And we're trying to figure that out. And again, this comes back to sensitivity analysis and what has been discounted by the market already and what hasn't. And so, you know, obviously oil and gas and financials are the two big sectors people talk about within the Canadian marketplace. So. Um, you know, one's got some near-term fundamentals tailwinds to it on the back of OPEC and the other, you know, um, there are some risks associated with the garden variety economic cycle to it. That being said, um, you're not paying 15 times for the banks, right? So there, 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 there's been a meaningful kind of PE multiple compression that started last year. It's been going on for the better part of 15 uh, months. So, um, if they were far more expensive than they currently are, I would probably be a lot more concerned. But now it's just about kind of trying to get, you know, the earnings estimates right. And, and what are we really paying for at the end of the day? Um, real estate is also a big part of, uh, of our economy. And you've talked a bit about that. But REITs recovered, you know, through the first bit of 2023. And I'm just wondering how you might be approaching real estate within your portfolio. I don't have a strong opinion, you know, as it pertains to publicly traded uh, REITs. I don't have a, a, a real strong opinion on the group. I am still concerned about uh, office space in the major cities. And I think that's the one that could get worse. Um, so we're trying to do a lot of diligence about that. I think that's where it's going to, if, if that to me, of all the segments of real estate still is, is the riskiest. And so I think if you want to invest there, I think it's going to require a lot of due diligence really to understand the situation um, for obvious reasons. So I think, you know, broadly speaking, I don't have a real strong opinion either way on real estate, but within real estate, if you break it down, if you break down the REITs, 
office space is the one I'm kind of, um, to me looks kind of like that yellow red flag and not, not to say there aren't opportunities there, but you got to really do your homework. I was also wondering about gold. Um, is that, can, can, can gold help manage inflation? We've seen the price, you know, rise a bit. Um, any thoughts on, on that? The, the price of bullion is most correlated with uh, real yields that become negative, right? Or, or go from positive and towards negativity. That's usually the correlation. As you know, real yields went up a lot last year, which is why gold didn't do particularly well. But if you think that we kind of continue to slow at some point over the, let's arbitrarily call it 12 months, that uh, central banks will have tightened sufficiently and gotten what they want out of the economy, which is a slowing of the economy, prices being buried, unemployment going up, financial stability, they get all that. Uh, that, to me, then, that means yields fall. Uh, yields become, you know, to going towards, on a real basis, towards negative. And that, historically, at least, has been positive for the price of bullion. Um, we were talking before, uh, you were talking about credit risk as well. Um, what, what are you looking at when it comes to credit and uh, what could the risks be there as uh, you know, the economy continues to evolve? Yeah, it's, as always, you, once you go through an interest rate cycle, there's things that come out of the woodwork that you, know, you don't necessarily expect. Um, and so we're mindful of that. That's why we go back to kind of like understanding the balance sheets of our companies really, really well. At the bank level, obviously, if, if the economy continues to slow, you'll have loan growth slow and there could be delinquencies. We would expect loan loss provision ratios to go up, but it's the magnitude of the slowdown, right? So it's kind of like, does it look like, you know, a, a fairly shallow, modest recession? Does it look something more like the early 90s or does it look like something like the early 80s, right? So those are very different kind of um, uh, examples or analogs, right? And so you got to kind of, that's the sensitivity analysis we're, we're kind of doing uh, on that front. It, it, it feels like, uh, you know, we're still lots of uncertainty, but so I don't want to get ahead of myself here. But what do you look for when it comes to the next investment cycle? Are you paying attention to, to how things might change from where we are today to where we could be tomorrow? The market, generally speaking, when you when you have these kind of like the pin is in moments of the market. I talked about March of 2009, March of 2003. You have this unabashed buying of risk and, and the characteristics are kind of small cap stocks, highly levered companies, high beta, low quality, what would be def generally described as low quality companies and stocks that kind of lead, but everything kind of goes up. It's just that those groups of stocks kind of lead more. Um, and what precedes that moment is usually a moment of panic, right? And it, and, and it you get that kind of um, ex selling exhaustion and kind of that, uh, that panic kind of blow off. At some point, it, it precedes those types of moments. Now, if you study the interest rate cycle, what you'll find that starts occurring is once central banks start cutting rates, um, the leadership in the market starts morphing from defense to offense in the early cycle. If you had a crystal ball, generally speaking, about halfway through the rate cut cycle. So if you had a crystal ball and you said um, there were eight rate cuts of 25 basis points a piece coming, you would start really starting to migrate your portfolio uh, on the fourth, so to speak. If you, if you knew with, with a surety, that's where you were going. Um, that's what history tells you. You can look back over 125 years 
and it always tends to work that way. So this is why everybody, going back to your consensus or my consensus statement about where interest rates are going and how the consensus is for cuts, I think this is why the market's not necessarily always, you know, trying to, got off to a good start this year, beta was leading. I think people are trying to get ahead of the rate cut cycle. And, you know, I think Jerome Powell and others kind of flashed cold water on that uh, back in February. And so this is like the mechanics of the market cycle. This is how it typically works. So when you start getting into a rate cut environment, the economic data typically looks really bad, like really bad. You need to be buying in the face of that. That's what you do. You should be buying fear. We're, we're trained to buy fear. All that homework that precedes it, that's, that's when you kind of just act. So as I said, we're doing the homework today with the expectation is there is at some point in the not too distant future, we get to put all that into practice and execute. And so those are the signs that we're looking for is like, are we gonna be in a rate cut cycle? When does the worst kind of get priced in? Um, how does leadership change thereafter? There's all these signs that have been, these guideposts, if you will, that if you look back in history and, and many market cycles, it, it always tends to rhyme like this. Right. So, so you have both the idiosyncratic work being done at the micro level by all our PMs and analysts, and you're hoping that dovetails with the micro, uh, the macro environment. And when those we got, when you got both two, you analyzed both of those two things correctly. There's a real good opportunity to buy smart and um, have really favorable active returns over the course of the next investment cycle. So we only have uh, you know about 30 seconds left, but um, on that, uh, you said before your portfolio looks the same as it did a year ago. Is it going to look different going forward? Yeah, I, I think it looks similar. Um, um, I, I've made some selective small changes to it, but it has to, by definition, it has to look uh, different uh, as we kind of migrate here over a certain amount of time. How it looks different, how quickly it looks different, by what magnitude, in what particular sectors, time will tell, right? That's where we do the stock picking and, and so on and so forth. But uh, by definition, it has to, um, because uh, we do have a sector neutral portfolios. The, the three that you mentioned are sector neutral or derivations of sector ne neutrality. But even within there, there is a certain degree of cyclicality within each of those sectors. So we have to understand um, both at a micro level and a macro level, where the cycle is going for the companies that A, we currently own, and B, those that we don't own. Great. Well, Andrew, I'm going to leave it there for now. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. That was a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.